everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Going for Two, the official podcast of the Extra Points newsletter. I am your intrepid host, Matt Brown, the publisher of Extra Points, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Brian Fisher. How you doing, man? I am good to be with you again. It's a, another week, another interesting subject. Um, I think uh, one that I think a lot of the listeners are, are going to be excited for and one that kind of brings me back a little bit, uh, have, having done some stories on this scandal back in the day, um, kind of go flashing back uh, to a, a time uh, long, long before now, but a, a important moment in, in the seminal history of the NCAA and, and the athletic scandals that, that fall out of it. Yeah. So for this episode here, we wanted to take a little bit of a a closer look at one of the more transformational, unique, interesting, important scandals uh, in the history of this big, dumb sport. Right. That's the academic scandal at the University of North Carolina. Um, And in order to do that, we brought on a special guest. We have the uh, uh, associate managing editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education, Andy Thomason, uh, who's also just uh, finished writing a book called Discredited, the UNC Scandal and College Athletics Amateur Ideal. So we're going to have him on in just a couple of minutes here to chat with us about some of the things that he learned in researching this book. The book actually comes out later this summer, but if you want to get a jump start on uh, making sure that you get the best price for that book and understanding how it fits in with everything, uh, stay tuned because we have a little bit more information there. I learned a lot because this scandal started just as I was graduating college, just as I was I was in a completely different career. So I missed some of these uh, beginnings here. It's a pretty wild story and, and a pretty uh, one that's, that's still really top topical to even today. Oh, you mentioned wild. I mean, just the amount of twists and turns and and the people involved in this is is kind of almost mind boggling. I mean, you got pack pride and, and message board posters. You got um, certainly when when I was working at, at Yahoo Sports on this with with Charles Robinson, we did a couple stories, especially related to the football aspect and and the extra benefits involved in that. Uh, when we were doing some stories on that, uh, you turn that into what it ultimately became in terms of the academic scandal, how that impacted the college basketball team that uh, obviously won two national titles in, in this kind of time frame. So it, it just really had a lot of touch points and, and it was a fascinating deep dive, especially into uh, the true nature of amateurism, I think, at the end of the day, because this was not only an athletic scandal, but it definitely did cross over into what does it really mean to be a student athlete, not only at North Carolina, but I think at a lot of other schools around the country as well. Yeah, it, it, it's wild to think about just how much has changed over a, like a little over a decade, right? I think I, I, I joke about this in the conversation about how the internet has ruined my, my sense of time, but how outraged the collective we, and I'm saying the media and, and also fans get about certain scandals and what we think about the, the what the, the scope of the NCAA should be or who should be punished for what, that's changed enormously over a decade. And I think this particular scandal was one of the two that, that really changed a lot of minds. Uh, so I, I, I'm happy to bring in Andy right here. We can kind of talk a little bit more about what he's learned and what this whole all this actually means. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I am I'm always excited to talk to somebody who really understands how college athletics works with the university itself under the hood and have a, somebody who has a longer perspective than just the past couple of years. So I understand that, that your book here is, is particularly about this UNC academic scandal, but um, as an amateur college football historian, I know that we've been arguing about athletics and academics and the integrity therein since about as long as we've been having college athletics to begin with. 
you know, I'm wondering when, when you were first starting to wrap your head around what this UNC scandal was, did you end up looking back at any of these other uh, academic disagreements or scandals or uh, was there was there any, any anything from this story that made sense to draw back from the 1930s or 40s or 50s? Absolutely. Um, I examined that era mostly in the context of UNC, and there are plenty of controversies specifically at UNC that go back to that era. But looking in retrospect at the scandal um, that's the subject of my book, you see some parallels with the 1951 cheating scandal at Army in which uh, a bunch of football players were expelled over over, uh, cheating controversy. Uh, Just recently, I mean, if you take that scandal and you zoom way forward, you see eerie parallels, not just with the UNC scandal, but take the Florida State scandal from uh, from 12, 13 years ago, I guess, um, where uh, a bunch of athletes got too much help and the university got dinged for it. But actually, the scandal that I saw the most parallels with that's from another era is from the 1990s, the University of Minnesota um, cheating scandal where there was that secretary who admitted to writing papers for the for the basketball players there. And the reason that um, they shared a key similarity in my uh, in my mind was that um, at the center of the UNC scandal was also uh, a secretary and not in the athletic department, but actually on the academic side of the house firmly in um, not part of the academic support program, not in the athletic department, somebody who was actually in academics. Um, so there are all these parallels that resound all throughout um, college sports history. And even as far back as 1893, I found a clip in the uh, the Tar Heel newspaper, this, what was the student newspaper at the time, where they referenced controversy around the university's football team and critics of athletics who decried um, the commercialization of athletics and quote unquote railroad traveling. Apparently people were upset that athletes were out traveling on railroads when they could be could be on campus. So like you said, there are all these parallels. It's fascinating to look into. Um, while my book is uh, focused on this scandal pretty narrowly, it's not hard to spot parallels out there uh, in, in history. The, it, it's so funny to hear that about 1893 UNC. I mean, what, I remember when I looked at my book, we're not super divorced from the era of college professors playing on some of these teams. Like the idea of amateurism as we know it today didn't really exist. You know, I, I just I just pulled this up here. In case you were wondering, in 1893, UNC destroyed Tennessee by 60 points, um, <laughs> lost to VMI, and was like lost 34 nothing to Lehigh. So even though in college athletics, a lot of things stay the same, some things are still pretty different. Although I, I guess Tennessee not being very good is 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 kind of universal. Um, I think we got a little bit ahead of ourselves here, and and that's my fault. So. The, the internet, and particularly the last year on the internet, has completely destroyed my sense of time. And I think that's true for a lot of our listeners, too. I imagine many of us are familiar with the broad strokes of what this scandal was. And you touched on it a little bit here. This is unique because the academic misconduct came from within inside the house, so to speak. But in, in case you were not paying attention to college athletics over the, the, the past decade or, or you've just forgotten because there's something else to be angry about. What the hell happened when we, when we talk about the UNC academic scandal? What even was that? So, yeah, I'll lay it out. Uh, summer 2010. One year after UNC basketball had won the national championship and 
while the football program was on this jet, this up, upward surging jet stream of, of promise. Summer 2010, the NCAA starts looking into, the NCAA enforcement staff starts looking into uh, impermissible benefits uh, on the football team. And this was with Butch Davis as the coach. So by the fall, they've gotten a handful of players. They found a couple of a uh, handful of players who have taken gifts, money, sort of like a garden variety impermissible benefits scandal. And people forget that it started out that way, but it was a real bombshell on campus in Chapel Hill to have this happen. It was, for many, it was unthinkable to have NCAA investigators in, in Chapel Hill. So that happened. The usual discipline and NCAA enforcement process kicked in. Some players were kicked off of the team, ruled ineligible. Um, but things changed when one player on the football team who'd been kicked off took UNC to court and tucked in his legal filing was a copy of a paper that he had written for a class uh, in the department that was then known as uh, African and Afro-American studies. So some NC State fans on packpride.com, which is like the message board community for, for NC State fans, ran it through plagiarism detection software and found that it, it had been plagiarized, sections of it had been plagiarized. That raised questions about how this had gone unnoticed and media outlets picked it up and we were off to the races. So a bunch of reviews and investigations and a lot of great investigative journalism happened over the next few years. And eventually the most thorough report uh, found that over a period of 18 years, more than 3,100 students, a disproportionate share of whom were athletes had taken a kind of phantom course or more than one uh, where they didn't have to show up, but had to write a single paper for the semester uh, for which they would receive a typically high grade. Um, in response to that finding, a bunch of people got, uh, a bunch of people, including several on the academic side, uh, got fired, demoted, and the university made some, uh, overhauled some processes so that that particular type of thing couldn't happen again. The final act of the story, which is what most people remember most clearly, I guess, because it was the most recent, uh, is when the NCAA uh, attempted to penalize UNC for the phantom courses, uh, they ultimately decided not to pass down a single sanction. And that was met with, with a ton of outrage. Uh, so those are the broad strokes, but I, I wanted to just point out that one of the things that attracted me to this project is that this was an academic fraud scandal, but um, it also involved impermiss impermissible benefits. And it also involved revelations or claims of athletes being illiterate, which is its own genre of scandal. It was all these scandals rolled into one. And I'm biased here because I wrote the book. But for me, this really felt while I was reporting it like sort of the one higher ed scandal to rule them all. You mentioned that. Is it the scale that that truly does separate this case? Because this this wasn't just uh, a football team. Uh, they started off that way, but it involved the basketball team, uh, obviously a very uh, famous basketball program. It involved an entire department at, at a school. I, I think that is almost difficult to wrap our minds around, that this involved an entire department at the school. Uh, it involved you know the governor's office getting involved, the Board of Regents. Uh, this this seems like the biggest scandal in terms of just the largesse um, that, that we've kind of seen in the last couple of years. Am I, am I wrong in thinking that way? Uh, it is the breadth and the scope that set it apart. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, like I said uh, before, there there was a bunch of, there were a bunch of types of scandals all rolled into this one, but they all carried the effect of cheapening this ethos that had been prevalent at UNC for decades, which was this idea or this myth of the Carolina way. In short, for people who aren't familiar, this was the idea that UNC 
was great at both academics and athletics. And that these two qualities actually reinforce each other, uh, which is an important part of the idea that you could be a university who produced lots of Rhodes Scholars and win national championships, all while avoiding the type of scandal that cheapened victory in these two arenas. So this is very much uh, uh, sort of a bigger they are, harder they fall situation. Like UNC had built itself up into this into this really admired institution and still is today, but it had a squeaky clean brand at the time. And as soon as that got pierced, it was like a balloon popping. The one thing I would fact check on just with uh, involved, like the notion that this involved an entire department, it definitely implicated, um, you know, these two people who worked in the uh, uh, African and Afro-American studies department, but many, many of the professors who worked in the department had no idea this was going on, which is one of the really interesting things about this scandal is that people uh, sometimes try, people will sometimes describe it in ways that make the secretary sound like a mastermind, when in fact it was standard academic processes, or at least this is what my book found, that were sort of corrupted or uh, warped in service of, um, of, of keeping players eligible, basically. I would say it, it didn't um, didn't implicate the entire department, but it did kind of stamp this department really unsavory uh, label. You're you're right. Honestly, I had forgotten some of the the beginning context of this story. Right, 2009 is I, I'm 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 working as an elementary school teacher. I'm, I'm not in I'm not in sports media at this point. But not only you're right. Is this an an, 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 an impermissible benefit story? It's not only an academic fraud scandal story. It's not only an illiterate athlete story. It is one, a story where a rival message board plays an important part of the process, which is extremely college football. And it's also a, a hypocrisy story, right? And so in, I'm from Ohio. I live in Chicago now, my neck of the woods. The institution that you're describing is Michigan, right? And we are about producing Michigan men. And we are, we're, we're, we're winning the right way. It's a very historical Big Ten kind of attitude, complete with how I think critics would describe it, you know, kind of sniffing your own farts or, or at least being very hypocritical about it, right? And and to my understanding, UNC is maybe a rare Southern institution that, that, that seemed to, to embrace this. After researching this book, do you think it's possible to, to even kind of live up to the Carolina way. Is that is that an ethos that's uh, that's doomed to be hypocritical from start, or are we just are we just failing at trying to reach it? So yeah, it, it's important when thinking about this to recognize that you know the Carolina way was a campus wide myth that encompassed not just athletics, and in this case, it was proven to be an empty or at least hypocritical in this case concept. As for whether it's possible to to do this, to to run a clean athletic department, let's say, because I think that's what a lot of people care about. It depends on what you mean by clean. If it means it's a department in which there's no rule bending, no no class clustering, no help, probably not. Uh, if it means a department that largely avoids scandal through skillfully deploying resources and money, I think it is. Um, what I concluded was the biggest lesson or one of the biggest lessons from the UNC scandal for me was that it's less about whether it's possible to do this, about whether it's Carolina way is like theoretically possible to achieve or a similar idea at another institution. It's more about the forces that make it 
so difficult for that to happen. Um, and what I found is, is, you know, these will not be uh, unfamiliar concepts to you, but when you admit a separate class of students on different standards than the people they'll be sitting next to in the classes that they take, the default scenario is that uh, they're going to be problems. Problems not because athletes are dumb jocks. That is absolutely not the case, but because this institution was designed for the type of student that's admitted through uh, the standard process. Some athletes, not all, of course, are going to face an uphill climb. That's where it gets tempting to bend the rules, to find hacks, to find cavities in the system. And that's what happened at UNC. It all flowed from that. And it was a recipe for scandal. We, we've heard uh, a lot about, you know, so-called easy classes. I mean, I, I think the I, I go back to the, the basket weaving classes that you kind of hear about at various universities where you know that, yeah, the athletes are taking them because they know they can get an easy A and, and others uh, in, in that school kind of understand, hey, that, that is an easy class. I, I can jump on that train, too. If we look at this scandal closely and, and we go to other universities across the country, are there elements of, of what happened at North Carolina elsewhere, you think, around the country at other universities, at other athletic departments, even though they might not be to the level that we saw in Chapel Hill. Absolutely. I mean, everybody knows about their um, campuses, easy classes. One of the things that came out of the, the most prominent report at UNC was uh, the finding that not only had um, word of the phantom class at UNC been spread to athletes, but also to the fraternities. People had been, you know, inside fraternity houses, the word was spread that you could go to this secretary, you could get an easy three credits, you could take take this class. So where it, be, where it becomes thorny is um, thinking about, uh, you know, right, is this class specially made, specially tailored for athletes? This ended up playing a huge role in the university's um, quest to, to beat back the, UNC, the, the NCAA where, where it uh, eventually succeeded. But what's, um, what is pretty much beyond dispute at UNC is that the academic support, um, these phantom classes were in a sense weaponized by the academic support program at UNC. Um, the advisors whose job it is to uh, be watching athletes' GPAs, keep them up, find a manageable course load. And so that's where my eye would be if I was covering this industry for a living is often the conflict between a university's academic reputation, let's say, and what it has to do to keep athletes eligible, that obviously manifests itself in the academic support program. And uh, a lot of readers of your newsletter, uh, Matt, I'm sure are in academic support and they know a lot more about this uh, than I do. But in my research for this book, that's where the rubber hits, uh, meets the road in a lot of cases. Yeah, when I was at Ohio State, which is a school that had a relatively expansive gen ed requirements when, uh, list when I was there, uh, the class that everybody knew about was an entry-level geology class called that we was colloquially called Rocks for Jocks. Uh, I believe Greg Oden was, it, was, in, was in that class with me, along with uh, a couple of other basketball players. And to their credit, they did better in that class than I did. But yeah, if, if you go and you, you listen around, these kind of things pop up. But you touched on something that is perhaps the most fascinating part of the scandal to me is the NCAA's response. So I, 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 you're right. One component of this is, hey, some football players, some other athletes got some stuff they shouldn't. And, um, you know, on extra points, I've taken the line that I think a lot of other reporters in my generation share, which is like, who cares? 
And I think we've definitely seen over the last 15 years or so that a lot of people, not just in the media, but you know, as fans, don't really care that much if somebody got uh, a little bit of money or a free tattoo uh, or, or, or some other kind of um, you know, side benefit, right? There's, there's more skepticism about amateurism. But I don't think that that has necessarily, I don't think that that, that kind of laissez-faire attitude exists for academics. There was, I think you could find a lot of reporters that said, what, what UNC did is was capital B bad. And it wasn't just capital B bad because it, under, I mean, it undermined the entire university brand. But if we're compensating athletes with their education, we should try to at least make sure that the education is real. And yet the NCAA didn't do anything. And that might have been because, and that was because of, you know, the, what their bylaws require them to do, or did, did you notice the uh, differing response from both the press and from external actors about the the different parts of this scandal? Am I off base here and and what I'm perceiving? No, you've touched upon a key point, which is that a lot of times when people talk about amateurism, they're using that as a byword for the system that amateurism preserves, right? And so there's two sides of this. And what's really useful when thinking about it is to read the story that your former partners did about the, the two sides of the academic reform equation. One of them is economic exploitation, right? It's, it's just wrong for um for athletes not to be able to get a piece of what of the revenue the, that they're generating. But there, there's the other side of it, which is the assertion that makes this system possible legally, which is that this is a, uh, you know, that athletes are, are students first and everything flows from that. So there are two sides sides to that. And then when you mentioned, um, you know, that this, this being capital B bad, athletes being deprived of an education, a, a big part of my book, um, zeroes in on the case of Mary Willingham, who was most prominently known as the whistleblower in this case, who is a literacy specialist in the academic support program. And she talked really um, persuasively to me about, you know, at one point she was in the advising office and she had seen, you know, she had worked in a um, in a high school and worked with um, functionally illiterate students. And when she got to UNC, she found that some of these athletes had similar problems that she had faced before, which was devastating to her. But then she actually saw the flip side of the equation, which is she actually did some work in the main advising house for non-athlete students. And she found that when students would come in to get their transcripts okayed or whatever they were doing to come into her office, she saw a huge diversity of courses on their list, biology, French, all the different, different academic departments represented. But when she had worked with most the students who were most disadvantaged in the academic support program for athletics, it was the same classes cropping up over and over again. So when you're talking about um, when you're talking about, yeah, students being deprived of an education, that was one element of this scandal that that Mary Willingham had seen this uh, on an individualized student level. But sort of, I think you hit on you hit on a really key point about the differing responses between the academic equation and the ec economic exploitation angle. And one of the things that I hope my book does is reveal that there is a cost to um, to there is a cost on the academic side to asserting the amateurism myth. It might come in a scandal that only rears its head every 50 years, but it is a cost.
Well, you, you, you know, the NCA didn't necessarily say there were academic violations and, and bylaw violations in, in this case, but they UNC did get into quite a bit of hot water with a number of accreditations and, and accreditors for the, the academic side of the scandal. How, how, how hot was that water for, for the Tar Heels in terms of dealing with a lot of the things related to the academic part of this, this scandal? So UNC's accreditor is an, uh, is an organization called SACS. And for people who don't know, basically accreditation is the process um, by which um, the value of a university degree is kind of stamped, like A-OK, okay, this, this, this degree is good enough uh, to earn federal financial aid, which is the lifeblood of a lot of colleges, right? So it's critical that universities are accredited. And so um, UNC's accreditor, which is called SACS, uh, dug into the scandal, did, did an investigation, forced UNC to go back and, and put together a report. And then ultimately, Sachs put, um, uh, I believe it was, they put UNC on what was called a warning or, but it was basically like the, the, the most severe step that they can take without revoking a university's accreditation. But what's important to recognize here is like, UNC would never lose its accreditation. Um, no accreditor would ever feel empowered enough to strip uh, a university like UNC um, uh, of its uh, accreditation. And that gets to a larger and really important point, which is that um, no investigatory body exists that was equipped to regulate UNC for what happened. You saw it with the accrediting agency. You saw it with the NCAA. Um, part of that is because UNC and universities like it are extremely culturally important. They have alumni all over um, the world in lots of um, different positions of power and authority. And also, they're just a beloved brand with lots of positive feelings flowing toward them. One interesting point on the, on the uh, accreditation angle, which ties into the NCAA investigation, is that um, a lot of the NCAA's case revolved around what can we call academic fraud? Can we call what you what happened at UNC academic fraud? UNC's argument was, well, we actually found that what happened wasn't against our rules at the time. We've changed the rules, so now it would violate our current rules. Um, and the NCAA ultimately said they found that persuasive based on the way their own bylaws are written. However, Several years before, while responding to its accrediting accreditation uh, agency, UNC had in fact called what had happened academic fraud. They had called the classes academic fraud in a formal document that they sent to the accreditor. But when the NCAA tried to call UNC to account on the statement, UNC claimed it was a typo. And that was one of the things that really galled people. And I think with reason. Um, it is kind of frustrating to hear this. And, and I, this, I, I remember this near the end of this particular scandal, right? It, it almost brings parallel to uh, or brings to mind like the U.S. finance system, right? You get to be a big enough bank, then the SEC or anybody can't really nuke you because you're, you're too big to fail. So losing your accreditation now, that's what happens to a tiny HBCU that runs into financial issues or uh, you know, some Bible college of, of an unpopular Protestant denomination. But if you're a gigantic AAU institution, um, you're, you're basically good to go right and, and i mean we kind of see we've seen this kind of with the cleary act too right and a, a couple of other federal investigations but even someone very clearly does something capital b bad they don't really get the full 
like a punishment of the law. Like, I guess just as much as we're not going to see another football team get the death penalty, we're probably not going to see any school that you've actually heard of lose their accreditation. Does that sound about right? That's basically right. Cool, um, cool. As with, yeah, I know. <laughs> as with so many elements of our society, uh, the haves went out, the have-nots um, went out less often. Uh, that's that's We definitely see elements of that here. Yeah. And we also see elements of it um, in, in the, on, on campus, right? I mean, um, UNC was led off the hook by the NCAA that very night was the celebration for the basketball, the men's basketball national championship. It was literally the morning they got the good news at night. They hung up the banner. I mean, you can't get more poetic than that. The, the brand ended up as a winner in this scandal, pretty much untarnished. The Carolina way was admitted to be uh, what Butch Davis called an Easter egg, but, um, but the, the brand ultimately won and who lost were these academic support program employees who got fired, a academic department that was unfairly tarnished, uh, and, um, a bunch of other very not powerful, low paid people whose lives were really, um, disrupted, uh, and, and, um, and, and some other people who were forced out. So thinking about the way that inequity and, and inequality runs through the story is something that I tried to do. And I think I made, I think it made its way into the book. Uh, there's just one, one last thing I think I'd, I'd like to ask you here before, before we let you go. Um, you, you shared already, I think some pretty important insights about what makes this scandal um, unique about how it explains a, a lot about internal university politics and how it relates to athletics and the lies that we tell ourselves to keep this whole thing going. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything else, you know, particularly I, our, my audience fits into two, at least the extra points audience tends to fit into two buckets, right? One of them tend to be fans who are just who are diehards and they want to understand everything that ever, how this whole enterprise works. And the other half are industry practitioners, people who are currently athletic directors, conference commissioners, sports management professors right now. I'm wondering if, if, you're, if you're imagining talking to those two groups of people, what did you what did you learn about this event that you didn't know before that might be of interest to those folks? So for the fan, there are a couple. Um, one is that, you know, the posts you make on your team's message board could very well plunge your rival college in scandal. <laughs> That's right. So keep posting. <laughs> that, might be a, that might be a dangerous message for them here. Nope. Um, yeah, the message is always keep posting. Um, no, but uh, a more serious take on that is that um, the the mostly online wars between programs can carry very real costs. Uh, a coworker of mine actually helped me think about the message boards as something akin to a, a standing army for a college, right. Or for, or for an athletics program, maybe more accurately ready to do the work of defending a program that's under attack, maybe by the media or the NCAA or attacking a rival program, which is, which is what happened in this case that gets the attention of donors and media outlets. And then that can set off a, uh, that can set off kind of a media circus. It, it's tough for me to say that as a journalist myself, but, Reporting this really made me question, in some cases, like the values of a of media attention and the media service. I really saw the other side of this, which was too many people who'd been traumatized by media coverage and attention, um, and and that that sort of had an effect on me. You know, that's the investigative reporting that that uh, 
drove the revelations in the scandal, which was mostly by Dan Kane, who's an investigative reporter at the News Observer, was really was really top notch. Uh, I would be uh, not that they really need to hear this is that compliance <laughs> is way harder than it sounds and stretches way outside the bounds of your department. Um, like there could be a secretary out there who decided to help a student in trouble and that could become a problem for you and your job. And like, how would you even be able to detect that? Like, how would you even have your, have your eye on that? And so I came away sobered at how well this actually works and kind of with the respect for how hard that job might be. You know, um, I'm actually working on something that that might publish on extra points later in March about compliance departments. But but to, to your lips, to God's ears, uh, about how challenging that job is, especially because it's a pretty easy punching bag uh, on Twitter. Uh, these individuals are are not the Pinkertons, right? Like <laughs> this is not not really who you want who you want to dunk on. Um, great point, though. It sounds like they should read your book. Where can other people buy it? You can buy it in lots of places. You can buy it on the uh, website for the University of Michigan Press. And if you buy it there, I have a 30% off discount code. It's also on um, uh, Amazon. Uh, and you can uh, call your uh, local bookstore and have them pre-order it. So it's only on pre-order right now. It'll be coming out uh, in the late summer or uh, fall, but uh, you can pre-order it now. And I hope if, uh, if people are interested that they do just that. Andy, real quick, uh, what is the name of the book again? Uh, the book is called Discredited, the UNC Scandal and College Athletics Amateur Ideal. Wonderful. Andy, thanks so much for, for taking some time to chat with us here. We'll throw that promo code up on the post on Extra Points. We'll talk about this again once it's a little bit closer to pub, uh, to publishing. But um, if you want to understand a little bit more about the blood and guts, about not just this scandal, but how this whole operation fits together, who it benefits, and who uh, was left behind, um, I think you're going to learn a lot from reading this book. Andy, thanks again for taking some time with us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This episode of Going For Two is brought to you in part by the Sideline Sprint. Uh, there's a lot of sports newsletters out there. Uh, my personal favorite is Extra Points, but there's a lot of other really good ones too. What's great about the Sideline Sprint is that it solves the problem of dry and dense traditional sports news uh, and gives you, you know, what's going on in the world in a more witty tone and skimmable format. Uh, you get the top headlines and scores delivered to your inbox in a five-minute read every Monday through Friday, completely for free. It's a great supplement to what your uh, typical sports media diet looks like. You can uh, check it out at the sidelinesprint.com. We have a link over at Extra Points here as well. Extra Points, coincidentally, is also the other sponsor uh, of, of this podcast. They are always the sponsor of this podcast because th this podcast is made in conjunction and partnership with that newsletter. If you're the kind of person that is really interested in listening to an interview about academic scandals and about how the interplay between college athletics and academics and all the other episodes we've done of this podcast, you're going to love Extra Points. And the newsletter that really digs into the off the field forces that shape college sports. Right now, it publishes four days a week uh, and from, covers everything from name, image, and likeness to the EA Sports video game, to higher education policy, to conference realignment, everything that, that sets up what you experience as a fan. If you aren't already a paid subscriber, what are you waiting for? Now's a great time to do it. You can try promo code www.extrapointsmb.com slash go for two. That's G-O-F-O-R two, the number two. 
that gets you 20% off a paid subscription. That's www.extrapointsmb.com slash G-O-F-O-R-2. Get you 20% off, get you all of the Extra Points content to your mailbox. Um, Brian, I thought that was a really... That was a really insightful conversation. It was interesting. I can't wait to really kind of dig in there and, and really get in the weeds with this book. I feel like I understand, you know, a lot about the Army academic scandal. I think I know a fair amount about a lot of these Paleoithic academic scandals, but I just really didn't appreciate how interconnected everything is here on, on this particular campus to almost every issue that I care about and probably that you care about. Sounds like this is going to be a really good read. Yeah, I mean, it was not only a great micro- microcosm for just really this era in, in college athletics. I mean, you have immediately preceding it the kind of the USC scandal that I think really jumped NCAA enforcement on a lot of people's radar. And then it kind of turns into what happened with North Carolina, not only an extra benefit scandal, but I think what really gets fans, certainly even administrators and, and those kind of on the academic side riled up about this case was the fact that it did kind of cross over in towards, a, you know, what is that line, but where that hard stop is. Um, and I think North Carolina certainly bumped up against it at times, but but also understood where where that area was that they could navigate, and it may have, may have provided a, a case for a lot of other schools. I think after this kind of uh, came down the pike to reevaluate themselves and say, what are we doing? Not only you know kind of taking stock of what happened, but um, what what are we doing to avoid a situation like what happened in Chapel Hill? Yeah. You know, I, I talked with Andy about this a little bit, a little bit off the air, but when you are the chancellor or the president of a school like North Carolina, even though athletics are enormously important to your student body and to your alumni and to even your state house, it's really a tiny percentage of what you actually concern yourself with on a day-to-day basis. A lot of the people that run these big schools, right? They're, they, they're, they're chemists. <laughs> they come out of medical schools. The, the even really big athletic budgets like UNC are, are just a small portion of the actual university budget. But when there's a scandal like this, your ass is gone. Like that, it, it, this, this is what will get you fired. This will end your career and end the careers of, of lots of different people. You really are kind of riding a tiger uh, a little bit when you have this gigantic enterprise here that you don't entirely understand and certainly can't completely control um, and can create an existential level crisis, not just a, a crisis over the bad actions of one coach or, or one program, but one that gets to the very heart of what kind of university you want to be. And the fact that it happened at this particular school makes it even more juicy. If this whole thing had happened, you know, no disrespect, but if, if this had happened to like Southern Illinois, Edwardsville or something, I, I this isn't the same kind of conversation, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and Andy kind of mentioned the Minnesota cases as well in terms of the academic yeah. components and, and listen, North Carolina, it's just a unique place in, in general. If you ever get a chance to go down to kind of the triangle and, and visit Chapel Hill, it, it, it's a unique campus, a fantastic campus, but um, you know, that Carolina way, it, it was referenced long before this scandal came along. We'll continue to get referenced and, I think the definition of that and and how it has evolved uh, is a good case for a lot of others around the country to kind of take note of. Um, I I think the the old entire North Carolina scandal, if you will, um, was was really eye opening for for a lot of people around the country and um, will have a lasting legacy uh, in terms of not only uh, what happened on that campus, but I think for others as well to say uh, we, we, we cannot be running afoul of things this in this manner. Yeah, if, if nothing else, if you are still listening to this podcast and you are somebody who is uh, a defender of the current amateurism or current college athlete status quo, this is, I think, still the most compelling data point to show that 
if your principal argument is that athletes are compensated with their education, this demonstrates that the quality of that education is not always sufficient. And hopefully this energizes uh, people in and outside the industry to continue to clamor and, and push for athletes, whether they're paid or not in terms of cash money to get the best possible educational experience um, that, that they can. Because this goes to show, even if you're at a great school, uh, that is not something you can necessarily take for granted. Certainly, it's a conversation that I think I'll continue to poke at here at Extra Points and potentially this podcast over the course of the coming year. Uh, Brian, I think that's about all the time we have here. I, I'm really excited about our guest for next week. I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. We're going to bring in my old buddy, Bill Connolly uh, from ESPN, formerly of SB Nation. We're going to talk about college athletic analytics and his unique path uh, to get into the position where we are. We ha- I, I think we have some fun guests who are scheduled in, in the near future. So I, I feel really bullish and excited about this podcast. Yeah, I cannot wait because uh, not just the the topic itself is fascinating, but Bill knows his stuff better than anybody. And and I'm literally creating some of the things. That are- yeah, Bill, in- he invented this stuff. So um, who better to have on than that? And he, it'll be fa- fantastic to kind of pick his brain because I think when you look at w- the, really the revolutions that are going on in, in college athletics and you know bill's a big soccer guy too and and you kind of see the changes that are happening because of analytics in that sport you see it in football nowadays not just going for for it on fourth down you know it it is a lot a lot beyond that and uh, i I think we're going to continue to see the progression uh not just with the the numbers and stats that we use but really kind of how everything adapts yeah brian where can people find you on the internet. Well, they can always find me at Brian D. Fisher on Twitter, B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. And of course, they, they can always find me if, if you want to. You can leave a five-star review wherever you rate and review and subscribe to this podcast. You can you can leave me a five-star review. Uh, you know, let me know. And, and I think we can also check the show notes. Uh, my, the link to uh, my Twitter feed will be in there. But that is the best place to, to find me in all of my work. And I'm sure it's the same back for you as well. Yeah, I, that, that is true. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Brown. EP. You could find me on Extra Points at uh, www.extrapointsmb.com. And you can also find me uh, constantly refreshing and reading those customer reviews and those ratings for this podcast because that helps this bad boy grow. When this podcast grows, we get better guests, we get better financial support. This whole thing becomes much more sustainable. Uh, and it's exciting. It looks like the people that are uh, listening to this podcast seem to like it. We have a 4.7 out of 5 star rating right now. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna shamelessly read one of these here real quick uh, to give you give you an extra incentive to write one. It's like the most recent one here from uh, Phil M. Uh, Dercador on the 17th says this is just a different way to look at college sports, just like the Extra Points newsletter. This podcast is a great insight into the business of college athletics and provides you with a different way of looking at college sports. Great show, five stars. Um, if you say something nice. I'll read it on the air and I can promise I'll pronounce your name correctly um, the next time. So, so please keep those going. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. We'll catch up with you next week. 